Hello, and welcome to New Hope Christian Fellowship with Pastor John Gilbert. It's a pleasure to come over and meet you all a little while ago, and we've been looking forward to coming back again. So, so thank you for the invite back. Thank you, Dom, for your word this morning around the communion, and it's a it's a real blessing and a real pleasure to break bread with you. It's a real joy. Now, as you'll probably remember, the last time I was here, I, I spoke on the three points of imputation, and I I laboured quite heavily on on the fact that all three need to be seen together, and um, if you don't understand the first two, you won't fully appreciate the third point. And I made quite a point of the fact that as in Adam we all die. We are spiritually dead. We can do nothing of ourselves. I had quite a long discussion with John um, on the phone a little while afterwards. And uh, he said he'd like me to come back and speak to you again. And I said, well, if, if I do, is there anything particular you'd like me to speak on? And he said he would like me to speak on the sovereignty of God, which fits in very well with what I said before. It's, it's a good building block to work from. Um, John said he'd particularly like me to touch on, and I can only touch on it in one sermon, but election and predestination. And if you're going to understand these properly from a biblical perspective, the foundational truth needs to be the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign, not us. God is working his purposes out. And he will, whether you like it or not, and I include myself in that, he will use us in any way he sees fit, in any way that pleases him, in order to work his purposes out, which puts us very, very firmly in our place. And it's a jolly good thing that he does, because when we're not held in our place, the biblical assessment of us is, all we like sheep have gone astray. Simple as that. If we're not put firmly in our place, we'll go somewhere else. And generally speaking, it will be diametrically opposed to God's will. So, be pleased that God is sovereign, even if it, well, from our basic sinful, fallen human nature, it doesn't sit well, but our basic sinful, fallen nature isn't going to do us any favours or take us anywhere good. It really isn't. Be very, very thankful that God is sovereign. Um, it's, it's a very important point to make. Now, I particularly chose this passage in 2 Samuel with David and Mephibosheth because this very, very, very clearly teaches this wonderful truth of the sovereignty of God. And it does it in the form of typology. Um, I don't know how much you know about typology, but... Uh, the Old Testament is very, very rich in biblical typology, where we see types of Christ and types of God in people. 
And very, very generally speaking, whenever you see a good guy in Scripture, he will somehow or another be a type of Christ. None are perfect. Nobody's saying that. Only Christ himself is perfect. A type can only go so far. But whenever you see a good guy, he will in some way be foreshadowing and pointing you towards an essential truth of Christ. In the same way, when you see a bad guy in Scripture, he will in some way typify the enemy of our souls, Satan himself. The classic example of that being Goliath. Goliath is Satan personified. He really is. All the evil kings, they will all point somehow to the enemy of your souls. And it's the same with women. When you see a good woman in the Bible, she will in some way point you towards a truth, typically point you towards a truth about the church. We are the bride of Christ. Eve was very, very typical of the church. Right up until the split second she fell. She was in Adam. We are in Christ. And so typology is a very interesting thing and it's very important to understand it because and at least to recognize it in its most obvious places because it's what makes a difference and this is so important and in a sense if you only take one thing away from anything I say today if you take what I'm just about to say as the only thing you take away then my living will not have been in vain this morning it really really won't it's these wonderful typologies particularly in the Old Testament that make the difference between us seeing this as a scriptural account rather than a Bible story. I don't like the expression Bible stories because it's very, very easy to get sucked into this way of thinking that they're almost like fairy stories. They're almost like fairy tales, and they're not. They are scriptural accounts of real happenings. And as Paul says, these things are written for our admonishment, for our education, for our edification. These things are written that we might learn from them. Okay? They're not fairy stories. They're really, really not. So... If you're in the habit of referring to Bible stories, try and get out of the habit of it. They're accounts, they're scriptural accounts of very, very important things. And if we get to the sovereignty of God, if we're going to understand how God works and how God chooses and calls his elect to himself for his purposes, the, the um, account here, see I nearly said story myself then, it's so easy to do. The account here of David and Mephibosheth is a wonderful one to look at and understand this. So if we look then at 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now we all know the basic story. Um, 
David's friendship with Jonathan was a very, very close bond. Jonathan has died in battle, as has his father Saul. The house has been left desolate. David is now the king of Israel. He always was the anointed king of Israel from the time that Samuel went to visit him. But now that Saul has been taken out of the equation, David is the king of Israel. David is a type of Christ and a magnificent one. He's the anointed king and he foreshadows the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he is absolutely sovereign. He has the power of life over death. He is absolutely sovereign. The word sovereign still gets banded around a little bit in this country. This is not to be compared with this royal circus that we've got going on in our country now. This is proper biblical sovereignty that you have in front of you here. David said that he is speaking as the anointed king of Israel. He is a type of Christ. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, this is absolutely pure, true, sovereign grace. David is under absolutely no obligation to show any kind of kindness to anyone from the house of Saul whatsoever. The way things were in those days, politically and militarily, if a king got deposed and a king from a different household took over, then everything from the previous king's household went. And there is a very, very sound reason for it. Nobody was left of the king's household or family simply because there would always be the danger of an uprising to try and depose the new king. That's the way it was. It spills right down through history, even into our modern history. Um, for example, if you look at the case of Elizabeth I, and when Mary, Queen of Scots, her behaviour finally is so bad that the, the Scottish people are so fed up with her, she has to flee across the border into England, and throws herself on Elizabeth's mercy, Elizabeth immediately has her imprisoned. You've got the extra um, religious element there if she's a Roman Catholic, and there is this terrible danger that if she's allowed to be let loose amongst the people, she'll rouse up all the Roman Catholics and they will try and depose Elizabeth. So you've got this friction and this faction going on, and so she has her imprisoned. Now, Elizabeth hasn't got the stomach to execute an anointed queen, but Lord Burley and Walsingham, Francis Walsingham, the pair of them, they most certainly have, and they have her head off. And that's the way it was in those days. And it's important to realise that because... This means then that what David is proposing and suggesting here 
is absolutely diametrically opposed to the way mankind does things. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Not that I can track them down and make sure they're destroyed for my benefit. Is there anyone left I can show kindness to? This is grace. This is pure, sovereign grace. If we read on a little bit, if we get to um, the end of verse 3, we find this slimy little reptile zebra. And if you read further on, you find out just what he's really like. But he's the one that is still one of Saul's servants. And he says, yeah, there is a son of Jonathan. He's lame in his feet. Now, there's your second type. There's your second type. Mephibosheth is typical of the fallen man. If you go back just three or four chapters, just 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4, here you get Mephibosheth's um, history. Very, very brief, just the one verse. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. There's his history. Mephibosheth is crippled by a fall. And that's exactly where every single person that ever has, is, or will draw breath stands before God, crippled by a fall. As in Adam, we all die. Covered this quite thoroughly last time. There you see it in Mephibosheth. He's crippled by a fall. And he's hiding in a place called Lodabar, which means a barren, unproductive place. And so, what does the king do? The king sent and brought him out. Well, if you're saved, you've been sent for and you've been brought out. You've been transferred from darkness into light. And you didn't do it in your own strength or because of your own decisions. You did it because the king, the king of kings, sent for and brought you out. This is such a wonderful typology of sovereign grace. Because Mephibosheth is deserving of nothing but death. That's how it was in the regime of that time, and also spiritually, like everybody else, deserving of nothing but death. The soul that sins must die. Find it in Leviticus, very straightforward statement. And Paul takes that and amplifies it, and he says, well, all have sinned. As back, right back to that basic truth, as in Adam, all die. And so the king sends for 
Mephibosheth. And here you see the third wonderful truth typified. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. If we turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1, just in the prologue, the, the prologue to John's Gospel is so, so rich with truth. It really is. It's absolutely wonderful. And in chapter 1 and verse 5, we're told the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. That is the reason why Mephibosheth has to be sent for. He's not going to come on his own accord. He's really not. He's got his head down. He's in hiding. And that's exactly what we see right from the beginning. Soon as Adam falls, the first thing he does is he tries to put as much distance between himself and God as he possibly can. And that's where we all were before we were born again. In John chapter 3, we get the same truth in verse 19. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. We're all in a hopeless state unless God takes the initiative to do something about it. So we see the why. If, if you then move on to, to John chapter 7 and verse 37, you see the how, how it happens. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit and he's putting out this call. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And if you, if you dovetail that in with John 16 and verse 8, it's just a wonderful, wonderful foundational truths. I, I'll read from verse 7. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. This is Christ speaking. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He will convict the world of sin. That's the world of the elect. It's not absolutely everybody out there. And you've only got to look around you to see that. Most people out there 
are not being convicted of their sin. But if you're here today and you're truly saved, it's because you have been convicted of your sin and the Holy Spirit of God has been sent to call you to Christ. And this is what we see with King David. He sends and has Mephibosheth brought to him. It's an absolute choice of God's. It's an absolute choice of David's as he is typifying God. I don't mind to sound too flippant, but it's just worth observing. King David does not stick a sign outside the palace saying, anybody who wants to come in, open doors, free for all. He pinpoints who he wants and he has them sent and brought to him. That's sovereignty. That's sovereign grace. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, comes, he's flat on his face and prostrate before him. Well, you would be, wouldn't you? Before the king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel. He's the king where in scripture... All the other kings are measured compared to David. And I think it's only Hezekiah even comes close to him. It's not to say David didn't make his mistakes. Of course he did. But he is the one that they're all measured by. He is the great king of Israel. And somebody from the deposed king's house is brought before him. Jonathan, uh, sorry, Mephibosheth must have been thinking, he's finally caught up with me, he's finally got me, this is the end of me. That's what Mephibosheth would have been thinking. Well, it's not difficult to think of a scripture that lines up with that. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And trust me, you don't want to. You don't want to fall into the hands of the living God. My comfort is knowing that when I come into the presence of God, it's with Christ's righteousness imputed to me. If that wasn't the case, if God looked at me in the same way that King David could have looked at Mephibosheth, I'd be a pile of ashes on the floor. I really would. This is sovereign grace. And so he's flat on his face before the king and the king says to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. God has shown you kindness for Christ's sake. He hasn't done it because he's seen anything good in you and and me, I'm not trying to point the finger at anybody else. I remember somebody once saying, when you point the finger at somebody, you've got three pointing back at you. You know, well worth remembering. God did not call me because he saw any merit or worth or goodness in me. God did not call me because he found me utterly irresistible, which is what so many people now 
professing to be Christians are teaching out there just in order to try and bring God down to man's level, make God acceptable so that everybody will love him like some big cosmic care bear. We cannot make God acceptable to us in our sinful fallen condition. He never will be because we prefer darkness because our deeds are evil. It's not about making, or it shouldn't be about trying to make God acceptable to us. It should be about thanking God because he has made us acceptable to him. And the way that he has made us acceptable to him is through the cross of Christ. It's really got nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with us at all. I will show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. That is so easy to just read over these points and just think, oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's nice. That's good of him to do that. But this is loaded with, with so much wonderful truth. When the king says to Mephibosheth, I will restore to you that you have lost everything that mankind lost when Adam fell is restored back to you in Christ well, what a wonderful thought that is isn't it I mean isn't that wonderful everything that you lost is restored to you in Christ and immeasurably more Adam never had the standing before God that you have Adam just didn't have it all he didn't have the revelation of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy the way we have his revelation of God was as um, an omnipotent omniscient creator but it didn't really go that much further which is why our Lord Jesus said, it is he that is forgiven much that will love much. I mean, if you really test yourself with the question, well, did Adam really love God? Well, he rebelled against him at the first given opportunity. It's a big challenge to us, isn't it? But everything that was lost in Adam and immeasurably more is restored back to us in Christ Jesus. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. Now, when the king says continually, he means continually. And okay, you can say, but, 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 King David didn't live forever. And if King David died before Mephibosheth did, then Mephibosheth might not have been able to eat at his table after that. But remember, he is typifying the king of kings. And we are told that we will be in God's presence forever. That is continually. And when God says it, he means it. It is continually. Our Lord says, of all that thou hast given me, I have lost not one, but will raise him up at the last day.
Um, I preached on this one wonderful subject at our church recently about the um, security, the eternal security of the saints. Don't let anybody tell you you can lose your salvation. You can't. You can't lose it quite simply because you're not responsible for it in the first place. If, if you think that you have in some way engineered and done something to get your salvation, then, yeah, you're on very, very thin ice. I'm a sinful, fallen man. If I could lose my salvation, I would. It's as simple as that. I would lose it every hour of every day. The Westminster Confession absolutely nails this one. It doesn't talk about eternal security. It doesn't talk about once saved, always saved, which is a bit of a dodgy throwaway expression. It talks about the perseverance of the saints. If you've been given faith by, from God, you have been given persevering faith and it will persevere through any trial that is put your way. This is partly what is meant by God will not put upon you more than you can bear or cope with. You have persevering faith, which is why Peter says, when we go through these trials, we rejoice. Well, why is that? It's not because we're some kind of sort of sadists that want to inflict trouble and aggro on us. It certainly doesn't mean that we should go out looking for trouble and looking for persecution. But what it does mean is when it comes your way, and you get through it, you rejoice. Not because you've been beaten up and had a hard time, but because it has proved to you just how deep and how powerful and how persevering your faith is. And we all need to be assured of that from time to time. God doesn't put us through all these trials because he needs to know what kind of faith we've got. He knows what kind of faith we've got because he gave it to us. It's persevering faith is what we have. You shall eat bread at my table continually. And Mephibosheth's response, and John just touched on this um, in his prayer and his thoughts after the Bible reading. What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Well, look, I'm not going to stand here this morning and call you all a bunch of dead dogs. I'm not going to do that. What I will do is say that um, that's how I regard myself, and I'm far more spiritually healthy for doing so, and I recommend it to you, okay? <laughs> and we'll leave it at that. A dead dog such as I. I spent nine years working in the prisons. I worked in three maximum security prisons as a prison officer. And that was through the 80s and into the 90s. Um, and I can absolutely promise you that I came across and locked up the worst that this country had to offer at that particular time. I locked up one of the crazies. I locked up that Donald Nielsen, Dennis Nielsen, who was chopping up homosexual boys and eating parts of them and then flushing the rest down the loo. I, you name it, 
I, I'm, I'm at them. I, I really have come across the worst that this country had to offer. Um, it does me good to remind myself that I have never locked up anybody that did anything that I am not inherently capable of doing myself. Okay? I really do mean that. I really do mean that. In Adam, we all die. We're all spiritually dead. We are, well, just look at the biblical assessment of us. God looks at us before the flood in Genesis chapter 6. The desires of their heart, evil continuously. And he reiterates it in chapter 9 when Noah comes off the ark. Nothing's changed. He says, I won't flood the earth again, even though the desire of men's hearts is evil continuously. Nothing changed. Then Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things, unknowable. Um, Paul comes along and says, there's none that does righteous, none that seek after God. Uh, no one can understand the things of God. And he climaxes it all in the one great statement to the Ephesians, you were dead in trespass and sin. That's where I was when, like I say, I never locked up anybody who did anything that I wasn't, or that I'm not inherently capable of doing myself. And I, and I think it was John Knox who once said, he was still on the corner talking to two or three other people, and a procession went by, and it was, they were taking a man to be publicly hanged. And John Knox said, There, but for the grace of God, goeth I. And we do well to remember it. And um, in God's eyes, before I was converted, before Christ's righteousness was imputed to me, calling me a dead dog was putting it mildly, really. It really was. And and it's good that we see Mephibosheth saying that. He can see his position in front of the great king. And he can see it very, very clearly. And we do well to see it as well. And even now we're saved, we do well to remember just how far we fell and just what it cost to pick us back up again. Check yourselves regularly that you're not slouching into God's presence. You're coming into the presence of God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth and the one that dwells in unapproachable light. It's their sobering thoughts. They really, really are. So there we find David, the king, there we find Mephibosheth in front of him, flat on his face. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. We see the wonderful declaration of restoration. He will be given everything back. And we see again in verse 11, we see again, Mephibosheth shall eat bread at my table 
excuse me. He shall eat bread at my table always. And if, you know, if that wasn't good enough, there's still better to come. Because he says another astonishing thing. At the end of verse 11, and this is the third time it said, As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. What's that telling you? What's the word that sums that up? And we sang it in our second chorus this morning. Now I am your son, I am adopted. Adopted in your family. He shall, Mephibosheth this is, he shall not only have everything restored to him, he shall not only eat at my table, but he shall eat at my table as one of my sons. We are all adopted into the family of Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful thing that is. What a wonderful thing. Um, as, a, as a little bit of an aside, but it, it's worth bearing in mind, and, and, and it's surprising how often it's not until somebody says or teaches something that's wrong that it really draws your attention to what is right and why it's right. John 3.16 is, is, is a verse that everybody knows. It's, some people say it's the most well-known verse in the Bible. Some say it's the most comforting. I say it's probably one of the most misunderstood. But one of the things that is said here, God so loved the world that he gave his what? Only begotten son. Now, a lot of modern versions omit the begotten, his only son. And it's quite simply not true. Jesus Christ is not God's only son. He's his only begotten son. If you're saved, you are a son of God. But you're not a begotten son of God. You're a son of God by adoption. The Lord Jesus Christ has a preeminence in everything, but he is not the first of the adopted sons. He's the only begotten son. And if you drop that, then he loses his essence of divinity. It's very, very important. And if, if you've got a Bible, I'm not suggesting if you've got a Bible where they've mistranslated that and left it out that you drop it in the bin. But if you've got a Bible that hasn't got that, just put a little asterisk there and write in the margin, begotten, to remind you, okay? It's, it's a very important point. There's a big difference between the Lord Jesus Christ being the only begotten son and us being adopted sons. And there's a big, big difference. But uh, that, that's enough of dwelling on the negative. To get back to it all, how wonderful that we see here adoption. We're adopted into the family of God.
which is why we can cry out, Abba, Father. That's not to suggest that we can get too casual with God and start calling him Dad or anything like that. Please don't do that. He is your Father in heaven. And he, as I say, he dwells in unapproachable light, awesome majesty. And one of the wonderful ways that we see it is in his sovereignty. He is the head of all things. And as we said at the beginning, he is indeed working his purposes out. He is absolutely sovereign, which is a wonderful, wonderful, reassuring thought, I'm sure, to all of us. Now, in Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles 29, and I want to finish with this, just as an example of just how wonderful it can be when we properly grasp the concept of God's sovereignty. This is coming towards the end of David's life. David desired to build the temple for God, and God said, no, you're a man of blood and a man of war. Your son Solomon will. But what David did do was he was given all the blueprints and the design, and he organized this incredible collection and talk about pass the bag around, <laughs> you know, tons of gold and silver, and this wonderful, wonderful collection. And so everything was there in place for Solomon to do it. And when all that's happened, in verse 10 of 1 Chronicles 29, and I'll read this through, and let's just have this as a prayer to finish with, with a thought in mind. Here is a man who really had it revealed to him just what it means for God to be sovereign. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty, all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honour come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. 
Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. To God be the glory. Amen. Over to you, John. Thank you for joining us today. We meet at Grove Hill Community Center at 11.30 p.m. in Hemel Hempstead. God bless you.